As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we are going to cont- we're continuing to look at this second paragraph in Ephesians 2. Um, this morning, we are going to focus in on verses 13 through 16, but once again, I'm going to read the entire paragraph uh, beginning at verse 11 so that we can see the context uh, of what Paul is saying. Last week, we in looking at verses 11 through 13, we saw that hope that belongs to us who um, by nature were far off from God, not only with regards to sin, but even with regards to being Gentiles as those who did not um, receive those covenant promises, those who had not received that covenant literature, those who had not received the blessings of of having the sacrifices and all the different benefits that the Lord had provided to his people Israel. And yet, God has come near to us in Christ. We are no longer without God in this world. We are now those who are a people of hope. This morning, we we zero in in this next uh, section in in, in, uh, verses 13 through 16 on this blessing of peace. Um, that is ours because of Christ. So this week, Advent, peace with God and peace with one another. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us having revealed 
your works as you created and then have been working from within creation ever since. And we praise you for the words that you have given to us that have interpreted your works so that not only do we know what you have done, but we know why you have done them. And we know the significance for us as your people. And so help us as we celebrate your work. Help us to better understand that work and to connect with you in your work as you interpret those works through the words that have been given to us here in Ephesians as they have been made real to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I like so much about this time of year with, with the lights, with the, the decorations, with the songs that you typically only hear this time of year, right? Where entire radio stations change their program to loop 24 hours a day of Christmas music. There is something different, and part of the difference is something that can be seen. It is something that can be heard. It is something that can be smelled as certain Christmas delights are baked in kitchens and shared with the pastor. It's an exciting, an exciting time of the year that is full of these tangible expressions of things. I was not always a big fan of this time of year, especially in trying to navigate the waters of, of Christmas or Advent or no Christmas and no Advent or what are we going to do? If I'm going to be a good Presbyterian, I'm supposed to be not, not happy and I'm supposed to not enjoy certain things. If I'm a really good Presbyterian, I'll act like Christmas doesn't exist and we certainly won't even use the word Advent. Well, my position has changed over the years. And one of the things that has helped that change and, and, and developed for me was the realization that for me, I'm not saying all Presbyterians, but for me as a Presbyterian, I had become so focused on theology as a set of propositions and ideas that I often lost sight that what God is doing in Christ, what God is doing in this world, is not just an idea. It is real. It is tangible. His works are things that have been seen. When you read the Scripture, when you're reading the Old Testament, and you see these interactions that people were having with God, they weren't sitting, meditating, having some kind of mental exercise in which they were trying to just simply think the right thoughts. They were having encounters with the God of the universe who was breaking into history time after time after time. 
What God is doing is by nature concrete. It is by nature bodily. And what we are celebrating during Advent is not just that certain ideas from the past have been fulfilled, but what we are celebrating is the way in which God fulfilled what He promised. As He is the God who is high and lifted up, we read moments ago from Isaiah 57, but He came near to dwell with the lowly in order to take the lowly and exalt them with Him. And He has done this by coming near in taking on flesh. One of the great implications for this is that our faith, though it is, does it has right propositional truth that comes from the scripture that is to be received, is to be believed, is to be trusted. The Christian life is concrete. It is real. It is tangible. And one of the greatest ways that this is to be reflected in the church is in the way that we relate to one another. Paul here, as he continues to unfold this corporate implication for this extravagant grace of God that he has unfolded since the beginning of chapter 1, there is a corporate implication for the, the Christians living at the time of Paul. Last week, I noted that this church or this collection of churches in Ephesus just like the churches that were throughout Asia Minor, these congregations were made up of people who were of Jewish backgrounds, and they were made up of people who were of Gentile backgrounds. And one of the things that was a hallmark of that existence is that they were required to change at their very core with the way that they valued one another in a way that was totally and completely countercultural. The Jews had had special privileges, and they had, but they had taken them for granted. They had assumed a posture of, well, we're God, you know, we're God's favorites. So it doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live. God's made certain promises to us. And so, you know what? We just go about things the way we want to in order that we can show the world that we're his favorites. Their perspective of Gentiles is that they were dogs. They were not worthy of time. They were not worthy of to be valued and getting to know or spending time with. And you certainly, you certainly wouldn't do something like sit down and enjoy a meal together. 
these attitudes were prevalent even in the church, even amongst those where you had a Jew that was naming the name of Jesus Christ and you had a Gentile naming the name of Jesus Christ. What Paul is trying to help them to get zeroed in on here is that to have Christ as a Savior is to have a peace with Christ that is not only individual, but it is most certainly corporate. Beloved, your peace with Christ is not something that belongs to you as an individual. It belongs to us as a people of God. Paul begins here by reminding us that the Gentiles were without God, they were without hope until Christ came. And by coming, he took on flesh. God taking to himself flesh. God taking to himself a body. God taking to himself blood running through his veins that would then be shed on the cross as Christ would become that substitutionary sacrifice, were really and truly in his body. He experienced the pain and the travails and the penalty of our sin. Just an idea. It happened physically. It happened bodily. Says Christ has come near so that you are no longer far off. You are now near to God because He has come near to you. He has come so close to you that He has come even in your form in taking to Himself flesh and then giving up that flesh for you. You have the hope of the anticipation and the expectation that God is going to one day fully and completely take away the tension that exists within the expectations that we have of living as God's people in a fallen world. And there's going to be a new world that's going to come. And we are going to enter into that new world with God, with bodies. Our hope is not just spiritual. Our hope is not just mental. Our hope is physical. It is bodily. And what this means then, what we are told here, Paul tells us, is that as a result of this work of Christ, of him coming near to us, we have peace. Because Christ, he says, note here, Christ is our peace. Christ doesn't just come and, and set up the conditions for peace. Christ comes and he physically and spiritually, the two working together as one whole, he is our peace. And we so often don't think about it in this way, but Christ is our peace because Christ 
is the first of a new humanity. Our need for peace goes all the way back to the garden. When the Bible speaks of peace, whether you use the Old Testament and in its word shalom, or whether you are speaking about the New Testament and its word irene, God is about the business of restoring peace that was broken. A peace that had existed until sin broke that peace. And what peace means is not simply the absence of conflict, although it does mean that. It does mean the absence of conflict, but it means so much more. Shalom or Irene, what it means is something that was broken has been put back together. Something that is complex is no longer missing any of its pieces. Now, when we start the playground project, right, and we have to build a wall, or some type of wall, I'm not a construction guy. Roger and Les can tell you the details. But we've got to build a wall. Well, a wall that is shalom is a wall that they will build, <laughs> not me. Because the, 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 all the different blocks will be put together. They will be connected to one another. And, and together, they will form one whole, uh, one whole wall, W-H-O-L-E. If I build a wall, it will be whole, H-O-L-E. Things won't be connected right. There will be gaps, right? And that, that is not the right way for a wall to exist or function. It's got to have all the different pieces put together just right. When that wall, built on the right foundation, with the blocks being arranged the right way, connected to one another the right way, they form, all these individual pieces form one thing. That is what shalom is. That's what Irene is. That's what peace is. It's wholeness. Christ is our wholeness because the first Adam broke what God had made. God made man, male and female, in his image, and he made them to live in fellowship with him. But instead, they did not trust God's law. They didn't trust his promises. They instead listened to the enemy. And the result of their listening to the enemy is that humanity became broken. The man no longer functioned according to how he was designed to function because he was now sinful. The woman no longer functioned as she was designed to function because she was sinful. Now, for many of us, when we think of sin, this is how we think of it. Adam as an individual was broken by sin. Eve as an individual was broken by sin. But you know what else was broken? Adam and Eve. 
the two who were designed to be one. They became broken. And from the very beginning, they sinned. God comes and says, well, what did you do? And what does Adam do? He throws his wife under the bus. He is revealing in a concrete way the sin that was now ruling his heart. And his brokenness was manifested in that relationship. And the rest of human history is just a footnote to that first brokenness of each individual that then became a brokenness of humanity itself until until a new human would come. And with Jesus Christ taking on flesh, what we are celebrating in Advent is not just that, oh, Christ you know, came in fulfillment of promises. Yes, we are, and that's awesome in and of itself, but we are celebrating a new humanity that began when the first Adam failed, and so a second Adam comes. And Christ takes to himself flesh, and he is, as we sang moments ago, he is truly man and truly God. And as a true man, he was a man who lived in shalom with his father. He did not sin. His relationship to the father was shalom. Jesus, beloved, is in and of himself that broken humanity put back together and restored according to God's original intentions and purposes. When Christ takes to himself flesh, and as he comes as a baby and is born to that, to that virgin on that first Christmas morning, what we are celebrating is the restoration of humanity in and of itself. He is the new human, which is why Paul tells us here, Christ is our peace. He is the peace that is, that is restoring a humanity that was broken back in the beginning. And you see it, Adam and Eve. You see it, Cain and Abel. You, you see it in Lamech. Right, I'm just going Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 5. You see it as we are told in Genesis 6 where the whole of humanity, the intentions of his heart were only wickedness. And how was that manifest? In the conflict that existed between people. And so God wipes out all but one family delivers them safely through the judgment waters. And in coming out on the other side of the judgment waters, we are promised that God shall enlarge Japheth and he shall dwell in the, the, the tents of Shem. That even in those three sons that come through 
that flood. It is not only one son in whom God is going to dwell, but he is going to dwell in multiple sons. And this is important because even in this new creation existence after the flood, sin is still present. And the reality is that the individuals are still broken and the relationships bear that out. To the point that you get to Genesis 11 and what happens? They take the abilities that God had blessed them with as those created in his image and they use them to exalt themselves. And they try to build this this sanctuary that will allow them to climb into the heavens through their own effort. And God comes and once again he judges. And in this judgment, what does he do? He separates languages. He separates nations. Why do we have different nation groups today? Why do we have different languages today? It is all because of a judgment that was needed in order to suppress the wickedness of humanity. And God has been pleased to keep the promise he made to Adam and Eve that there would be a seed of the woman who would be born, who would come into this world. And even with the separation of the nations, God chose Israel for the purpose of bringing about that promised seed. But his purposes were always for the nation. His purpose was never, I'm just going to pick Israel and that's all I'm going to have. And if you're born in Israel, if you're circumcised, if you offer sacrifice, if you go to the feast, if you practice the diet, if you wash your hands right, if you do those things, then you're in. It was never God's intention. It was never his purpose. Israel had a unique function that was a privilege. There is no doubt about it. But the possession of the privilege was not enough. They still had to repent of their sins. They still had to trust in God's promises. And they still were supposed to manifest that in their relationships. But instead, Israel took their privilege. They turned it into an opportunity of pride. And then they looked down on everyone who was not like them. What Christ, as our peace, has done, beloved, is He is restoring what was broken in the garden. He is restoring the violence that has been perpetrated since that garden. He is restoring the the humanity that was broken up into different tribes, into different tongues. And He is holding all of this in unity with Himself and with the Spirit, and with His heavenly Father. And what does this mean for God's people? It means there is absolutely no excuse for thinking poorly, or interacting poorly with someone else on the basis of the language they speak, or the color of their skin. 
There is absolutely no excuse for interacting with, with one another on the basis of anything other than union with Jesus. Whether you are someone who professes Christ in Spanish or in German, in Swahili, in Alabamian, whatever, doesn't matter. You profess faith in Christ and you are united to him who is your peace. Beloved, you are now participating in the new humanity that began with Christ. You are, by the very nature of your union with Christ, part of the shalom of God. And that shalom, beloved, is not something that is to be private, that is to be individual, that is to be hidden behind the doors of your household. The peace of Christ, beloved, is a tangible peace. And it is born out in the way that you relate to one another. Just in case you're curious, there is absolutely no earthly distinction that you can raise that gets you out of this privilege of manifesting your peace tangibly. This exists. Republicans and Democrats. exists regardless of your socioeconomic status. It exists regardless of your race, your nationality, of your language. There is absolutely zero justification for relating to people of these different designations differently because of the designation itself. Christ is our peace. He is a tangible peace. And beloved, when you and I love one another well, we become a tangible expression of the peace of Jesus. Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law not only with regards to his morality, which is how we tend to focus on the law in terms of that moral law of God, of of righteousness and sin, but he fulfilled the law ceremonially. All, All of those special distinctions that Israel had because God had chosen them to bring about the Messiah, because they had the covenants, because they had circumcision, because they had the the diet and the washing and the sacrifices and all this stuff. The reason they had those was to be an anticipation of the coming Christ. Those were not things that were meant to make them prideful. They were if anything, 
they were a heightened understanding of their wickedness. Were the Gentiles sinful? Absolutely. But as I said last week, a lot of the times the Gentiles didn't even understand their sinfulness. Guess who did? The people with God's testimonies. But having those testimonies did not result in the humility that looks to God. It resulted in a pride that rejected God. For you and for me, one of the ways that this can very specifically manifest itself in reform settings is not just with language and skin color and things like that. It does, right? When you look at, the, the, at Presbyterianism across America, whether it's the PCA, the OPC, the URCNA, the, all the different alphabet soup of Presbyterianism, what you will find is an overwhelming majority of middle, upper middle class, white, college educated people. It just happens. But that's not the only ways in which this, this narrowing of the peace of Christ can manifest itself. This is getting a lot of attention right now, and it should. But there's another way where this can manifest itself more obviously on a daily basis. And that is within the designation of those within the church who are self-righteous versus those who are weak of conscience. And by self-righteous, I do not mean people who are trying to earn their righteousness through their works. Do we have that in Presbyterianism? Sure. There are going to be people who misunderstand the gospel in every denomination and, and who struggle with wanting to do something, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the self-righteousness that exists because, well, I read the Bible more, so I obviously know God better than you. I read it more faithfully, so obviously I'm a little more favored by God than you. And what does this mean? Well, it means that you need to listen to me when we're trying to do things in the church. You need to listen to me about what we should be doing. You need to listen to me about how we should be doing it. There is a self-righteousness that comes from the study of Scripture that if it is not managed well, will manifest itself in breaking the peace of the local church. And that is an absolute contradiction to who Christ is and what he is doing. Now this is not to say that if there is sin going on, that sin should not be addressed. It absolutely should be addressed. But beloved, if you have an issue of preference, style, do not raise that to the level of Scripture. And do not raise that to the level of, of being a superior position that other people need to listen to because you are closer to God than they are. That is a self-righteousness 
that eats away at the center and at the core. And one of the places you can see that is in this time of year because I used to do it every year. I'm going to write my blog explaining why Advent is so wicked and horrible. And anyone that does it, I'm going to just call them silly and fleshly, and I'm going to make fun of them because they don't have the real spiritual understanding of Christ in worship. I'm not saying that you just embrace everything. I'm not saying that we don't measure everything according to Scripture. What I am saying is that when you have done that, hold it with humility. Because you are not free from the obligation of being a tangible, concrete exemplification of the peace of Jesus. It doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. But when we disagree, we're going to disagree in peace. The peace of Christ is tangible. And one of the places that you see it so clearly is in the facial expressions that you use, not just when you're talking to someone in your presence, but when you're talking about someone who is facial expressions, your bodily, your, your body language, the things that you think, let alone the things that you say. Notice here that Christ is our peace. He's our peace with one another. And he is our peace with God because he took up the cross. Circumcision, sacrifices, washings, diet, whether you sing hymns or praise songs, whether you wear a tie or don't wear a tie to church, all these different things, that wall has been broken down because Every possible thing that foresignified the coming of Christ has been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. He took on flesh. And as our catechism says, his suffering began in the taking of Suffering continued as he, as one who was in shalom with God, interacted with sinful humanity and experienced the frustration of what that's like, even with his own followers, as they were so often not a people of faith, as they were so often a people of self-righteousness. Jesus' suffering went even to the point of then entering into the brokenness of broken relationships as our sin was placed upon him and as the Father turned his face away. The Father had turned his face away from Christ. But he 
to turn his face to him. But make no mistake, he turned his face away from Christ that you could turn your face to one another. Look at those around you this morning. This is the body of Christ. Real, tangible, physical. Made up of men and women. Made up of children and older adults. Made up of people with different colored hair, different colored skin, different backgrounds. All united together in Jesus Christ. Question for you this Advent is as you reflect upon that first coming of Christ and his taking to himself flesh, will you take up the privileged opportunity of manifesting his peace as you relate to yourself to God in Christ, relate to your, yourself to one another in Christ, as you relate to this watching world so that those who are still far off from God might see in you not only the hope of Christ, but also his peace. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing grace. We hated you. We fought against you. And yet you pursued us even to the point of sending your Son who took to himself flesh, who entered into the hostility, who drank to the last drop the fullness of your hostility towards us in sin in order that we might receive to the fullness that shalom of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Father, use this Advent in our lives that we, like Christ, would humble ourselves and that we would embrace this gift not in order to make a big deal about ourselves, but in order to make a big deal about you and to make a big deal about our neighbors. Lord, help us to embrace not only the right ideas about the gospel, but to embrace a gospel life of hope and of peace. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.